All right. Well, take your Bible. Thank you, Brother Jonathan, and uh, thank you, Ms. Racinos, for that. Uh, let's take our Bible, and let's get over to Hebrews chapter 4. And uh, one of the things I have noticed, and if you've been around... Um, just church and doctrine for any amount of time, any reasonable amount of time, you might, know, you might recognize this. This might ring a bell with you. It is a strange phenomenon that happens, and it happens a lot, a scripture text or a, a Bible passage that deals with things like eternal security are oftentimes the passage that heretics will use to prove the opposite. And I don't know how that happens. I don't know how they miss the forest for the trees. But oftentimes, and again, if you've done any level of apologetics, and apologetics is simply the defense of the faith, um, where you can hear false doctrine or false teaching or misconstrued scripture, and you can, uh, uh, you can defend against that. You can, you can speak into that. That's apologetics. And if you've experienced or bumped into apologetics at any, at any length, which if you've been saved for any amount of time, you should be able to, as you learn truth, it's kind of like uh, uh, dealing with counterfeits. If you know what the true bill looks like, you can spot counterfeits and you can say, well, the reason that's fake is because there's no this or no that. Uh, I was showing my kids the other day on the new, I don't know what they call the new driver's licenses where it's got, uh, what, is, what do they call that thing? The new one where you got to have it to fly. The real ID. I was, I was telling my kids, I said, hey, I'll give you a dollar if you can find the bear on my driver's license. And of course, it's not printed on there, but if you hold it up to the sun, there's dots that make a bear. And uh, my kids couldn't find it, but I knew it was there. And so as a Bible believer, when you study the scripture and you, you understand it, you should be able to spot the fakes when it comes through. And that's, that's simply apologetic. So I say all that to say this. There are times this weird phenomenon happens where a passage is absolutely unequivocally proven eternal security that somehow people who believe you can lose your salvation use that same passage to prove, oh, you can lose your salvation. Um, uh, the same thing is true of a works-based salvation. They'll use passages that deal with, um, you know, uh, full faith, and they'll use that to prove works-based salvation. Chapter 4 of Hebrews is one of those chapters as it relates to a works-based salvation. Chapter 6 is going to be about losing your salvation, and, and it's not. It's not. That's just what heretics believe it says. But as you study it, it becomes very clear that God is actually, not only is he not saying you can lose it, he is reaffirming you cannot lose it, okay? So it's a strange thing that happens, um, and so it causes some maybe undue uh, <coughs> stress as we approach a passage, and I don't want that to be the case. And so as you get close to chapter number four, well, let me give you this as well. I believe it's Romans chapter 9 that deals with the predestination of God's people of Israel. That chapter is not about predestination of saved people. In fact, that chapter is proving that the Jews, while selected as a people to carry the word, are not selected for salvation. And that's one of those passages, Hebrews 8, 9, and 10, that people who believe in a false, false version of the gospel use to prove their false version of the gospel when if you would just objectively read those passages, you'd come to the opposite conclusion that they're trying to prove. And Hebrews 4 is in the exact same vein of thought. Now, before we get to 4, Let's revisit chapter 3. We won't read it, but chapter number 3 dealt with this idea. It started, I think it was verse 6. It said, holding fast the confidence of our salvation. And it talked about the idea that we are his household. We are his uh, dispensation. We are under his authority structure if we hold fast the confidence of our salvation. And we saw last week, that's not talking about, hey, if you hold on to salvation, then you're his. But if you lose it, you've lost it. 
That's not what that passage is saying at all. It says, hey, we can have hope and we can be under his authority structure and we can sit at his table. And the word hope is is found there. I think it's in verse six. It talks about having hope if we hold on to the confidence, knowing, hey, I'm a child of God. I'm his. I'm saved. I'm redeemed. Hold to that confidence. Paul or the, the writer of Hebrews. I don't know why I do that. The writer of Hebrews simply says, hey, hold on to that confidence and follow Jesus. And then in verse 14, he says, hold on, not just to the confidence, but he says, hold to the beginning of that confidence. And we establish, well, the Bible establishes, we just recognize that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The beginning of our confidence is the doctrines of Jesus. And those doctrines never change. So therefore, our confidence should never change. Therefore, our hope should never change. Therefore, we are his household is what the passage in Hebrews chapter three is talking about. So now we've got that kind of laid. Now we're going to jump into chapter four. I I think it's important to note, and since we we have a little bit of time, let me note this right now. Don't disconnect Scripture from Scripture, okay? Chapter 3 and chapter 4 were not originally two separate chapters. It's the same vein of thinking. It's the same sermon, if you will, uh, from the author. And so as we get into chapter 4, chapter 4 is built on chapter 3. When we get to that scary chapter 6, chapter 6 is built largely on what we're going to learn today in chapter 4. And so don't disconnect those. If you disconnect Scripture from Scripture, you're going to end up with all kinds of problematic views and all kinds of things the Bible never intended to teach uh, because he's going to use illustrations and examples. In fact, we're going to find three examples today um, that that, uh, the author is going to use. He's going to talk about under Moses, um, they were supposed to have rest and then uh, they were supposed to have rest even under David, uh, but they hardened their hearts in those days of provocation and there was a promised rest that was supposed to come. And so keep those connected to chapter three as we get in. So let's do it. Let's jump into our first verse of the chapter. Verse number one says this, let us therefore... Now, the reason we went over chapter 3 is because of that word, therefore. So, therefore simply means in light of what I've already stated, in light of what we've already seen, in light of the fact that Christians are supposed to be under the lordship of Jesus and hold fast to their confidence and the doctrines that create that confidence in their salvation, in light of all of that, let us therefore fear. Now, we know that God is not the one who's given us a spirit of fear, right? But of power and of love and of a sound mind. This word fear, he's telling us to take this matter seriously. He says, there ought to be an uneasy searching in your heart for a very particular reason. Look at it. It says, let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left of uh, left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem, and that word seem is very important, any of you should seem to come short of it. Now, I told you all I did, all my introduction, because this is a passage that people will teach that, hey, listen, you get saved, that's like the down payment on the car, but you got to keep up payments. And if you don't keep up payments, you're going to lose your salvation. And this verse does not say that, not at all. What he's telling us here is that it seemed to come short of it. What he's suggesting is that they, it's not easy, he's not implying they can lose it. What he is stating is that it seemed like they had it all along, but they never did. They never possessed that, uh, that, uh, that, that, uh, that saving faith. So think about it like this. If you came up to a cash register and uh, you came up short of paying for your milk, it's not that you had the milk and lost it. It's that you seemed like I got in the, I got in line and it seemed like I had it, but I never had enough to pay for it. I never had what would purchase that milk or in this particular setting, salvation. And less, and, and uh, the author here is simply stating that at the front, at the front end of it, by the time you get to the end, it might seem like you're saved, but if you don't have what saves you, it seemed like you had it all along and you can sit in church and it seems like you're saved. 
It's everybody thinks you are. You grew up in church. Your, your parents told you you got saved when you were a little kid, but you never had the necessary payment for your redemption. You never had it. And that's why it doesn't say, lest you fall short sometime later. He's saying it seems like you had it, but you never really did. So really, it's not a verse about losing your salvation. It's a verse about never having had salvation. It seemed like you did all along, but you don't. Let's keep reading verse 2. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. So he's separating into two categories. So he says, hey, church, uh, hey, Hebrews, he says, hey, you guys need to walk circumspectly in fear, lest it seem like you had enough to save you, but you don't. And he said, there's two categories of people. He said, there are, we, the gospel was preached to us and to them. He says, there's those who are saved and those who are not, essentially is what he's getting at. Look at verse number two. For unto us the gospel, uh, uh, for unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them. Notice the two categories. So the author is saying, hey, I'm saved. I have enough to purchase my salvation. But how did I get enough to purchase my salvation? Because the same gospel was preached to me as it was to them. But what's the difference between them and me? Did I do more? Did I work more? What, what's the difference here? Let's read the verse again. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, the non-believers, or the, those who aren't saved. But the word preached did not profit them. Well, why didn't it profit them? Did it not profit them because they didn't keep up down payments? Did it not profit them because they didn't do enough good works? No. Look at the text. Not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. This is not a verse about losing salvation. This is a verse about never having had the faith that saved you. And it seemed like you did all along. But the author says, hey, walk in fear and pay attention. Because, listen, the gospel was preached to save people and lost people. But it didn't profit lost people. Why? Because they didn't do enough good? They didn't go to church enough? No. He said it didn't profit them because it was not mixed with faith. It did not profit them not having been mixed with faith. So listen, here's the big picture of chapter 3. Chapter 3 took us from, hey, we're under his household and under his authority. We, gotta hold, we get hope because we hold to the confidence. But that confidence is rooted in the doctrines of Jesus. And here's what the author says in the very next chapter. Those doctrines were preached to all of us. And it didn't profit them. Why didn't it profit them? Because it wasn't mixed with faith. And therefore, it seemed like they had salvation, but they never did. Okay? So let's just kind of catch our breath and see that big picture here today. If you're here and you have heard the doctrines of Jesus, you have heard how Christ died on the cross, and he was buried, and he rose again, and he did all of that because God must judge sin. God is a holy God, and he has wrath on sin, and pours his wrath out on sinners, and if you die in your sin, you die guilty before God, and the wages of sin is and has always been and will always be death. So you're guilty. You die guilty, you go to hell. So the Bible says... So you can hear that this morning and mix that doctrine with faith and accept Christ as your savior and you are saved forever. But if you hear that this morning and do not accept that in faith, then it profits you nothing. I can stand up till I'm blue in the face and preach the gospel. We can put the gospel video we have on our church website on loop and play it across all of Bakersfield and preach it to those who accept it and those who reject it. But how did they get it and how did they didn't? The author's very clear, not being mixed with faith. So this is not about, and even though it opens up with the idea of, hey, you got to be fearful lest it seemed to fall short of the grace of God, it kind of feels like, oh man, he's talking about losing salvation. Not at all. He's talking about those who never mixed it with faith. And that theme is going to be beaten like a drum through the rest of this chapter. So look at the very next verse. For we which have 
So we said over here, here's group number one. It didn't profit them because they did not, what was the word? They didn't, they didn't receive, they didn't mix it with faith. Then we have over here this other group that the author is saying, hey, and then there's we, verse three, for we have, what's the difference here? Believed. It didn't say we have worked. We were better than them. We went to church. We got baptized. You know, we tried harder. No, he says they didn't mix it with faith and we believed. Those are the two different groups of people on the planet. There are those who have mixed the word of God with faith and have accepted it. There are those who have not mixed it with faith. So let's keep reading verse three. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said. Now, if you're in the habit of writing in your Bible above chapter number three, I would just write that word rest. Chapter number three is all about rest. Like I said, he's going to use the examples in the Old Testament where, hey, they should have had rest, but they didn't. And that's what he's warning against right here. So let's keep reading. It's all, it's all about faith in verse number three. It's not about works. Uh, whenever you hear, let me, let me talk just briefly about the perseverance of the saints. And uh, that is a doctrine loosely associated with Calvinism. I think that's unfairly due. Um, I believe in the perseverance of the saints. Maybe not exactly as a Calvinist would, but I don't know if there's too many differences. Simply this, here's what the author is asserting. And here's what the Bible teaches about the perseverance of the saints. The perseverance of the saints, there's a bit of a misnomer. Sometimes it's kind of painted in a funny light. Like, well, you know, there are people who believe, and there are, there are people who believe, and when they say perseverance of the saints, what they're saying is when they get saved, they have to persevere in order to be saved. Now, that's works-based salvation, but that's not, I think, mostly what perseverance of the saints means, even to those who believe in Calvinistic doctrine. We believe, and the Bible teaches, we believe that once a person is saved, they will persevere. Not that they have to persevere to be saved, but because they are saved, they will persevere. And if you're confused about that, you need only go back to 1 John when we studied that passage out. It talks about that the the record of Jesus is not something that a saved person will ever come to deny. And the Bible tells us in that book that they went out from us because they were never of us. They never had accepted the true faith of Jesus. But listen, once you do accept the true faith of Jesus, you will persevere with that doctrine. Does that mean we'll never backslide? No, we for sure will. You'll probably backslide this week, right? You're not going to, most Christianity isn't just an upward trajectory, right? All of the time. I mean, it's growth and it's stagnation and it's growth and it's backsliding and then it's growth. And that's how it is. But what he's telling us here, and, and as it relates to the perseverance of the saints, it says when someone gets saved, they will never lose the doctrine, holding fast, not just to the confidence, but to the beginning of their salvation. They will not, and I'll just kind of make it practical, bring it into some illustrations, A truly saved person will never become a Mormon, okay? A truly saved person is never going to say, yeah, Jesus is in God, he's created, he's the brother of the devil. That's just, I I believe that. No, a truly saved person will never go out from us in terms of the doctrines of Jesus. It's just never going to happen. Now, they may backslide and fall out of church. They may end up in sin. Those things all happen to save people. There are even times where a saved person can mess up on some of these things and, and get a little bit confused about one thing or another. But the Bible is very clear throughout that if you are saved, you will persevere to the end. You will not all of a sudden become some version of a Catholic person who believes that a priest can can make you saved through his, you know, the Eucharist and so forth. A truly saved person hears the voice of Jesus, knows his voice and follows him. Doesn't mean they're going to be perfect, but it does mean that they are going to continue. So this passage isn't really talking so much about perseverance of the saints, but I felt like it was a good time to kind of stop and talk about it. So let's get back to verse number three. It says, for we, this other group, which have believed, do enter into rest, as he said, I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, 
although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. Now, did you catch the Old Testament reference there? The author throws them in in kind of obscure ways. So uh, you recognize back in chapter 2, we said, and it is said, and again, and again. Remember those like really subtle cues that the Jews would have caught that we might not have? There was one right here. And so let's look at it. It says, as I have sworn. So uh, the author is speaking in first person on behalf of God. And he's saying, hey, I already swore this to you. And if you're in the habit of writing cross-references, Psalm 95, 1, 11 is the cross-reference there. We won't necessarily turn there. But Psalm 95, 11 talks about creation's rest. So we get to the first illustration the author is going to use to talk about rest. That in creation, and we'll see it in the text in a second, in creation, God created perfect rest. Now, man was supposed to work but there wasn't going to be thorns and there wasn't going to be sweat and there wasn't going to be this awful toil in labor. Man was going to exist in rest. And uh, uh, what we find right here in this particular passage, uh, let's read the back end of it. Well, let's back up and read the whole thing and we'll read the back end of it. Cue in on the, on the last part. It says, for we which have believed do enter into rest. As he said, I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although, here's creation, the works were finished from the foundation of the world. So that might cue you in and you might say, hey, that sounds like another verse that Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Is that what he's referencing? Um, I would say yes and no, but mostly yes. What he's specifically uh, referencing here is the idea that creation was made and rest was had. And in fact, God worked six days. And then on the seventh day, he what? Because the works were done. It was finished. Man didn't have to do anything else. God already did it for them. So is that a reference to what Christ brought us back into? You remember Christ, the second Adam, undid what the first Adam broke to bring us back into the garden relationship. And the garden relationship here in Hebrews chapter 4 is being defined or headed by this word rest. That we get to enter back into what God once made for us when he ceased from his work, from the foundation of the world. But listen to me, why did Adam fall? And here's the whole chapter, because of a lack of faith. It wasn't his works, it was a lack of faith. He did not believe that God could determine good and evil for him. He did not take the words of God uh, with the full faith that says, hey, don't touch this, just trust me. Instead of that, he went and he chose for himself sin. Let's look at verse number four. For he spake in a certain place. Now that's Genesis chapter two of the seventh day on this wise. What is he saying on this wise? He's talking about rest. He's talking about what he mentioned in verse three. In verse three, he talked about how God finished the works from the foundation of the world, that God created all things in six days and rested on the seventh. Look at verse five. And in this place again, also referencing Genesis two, if they shall enter into my rest. So listen, from the beginning, the whole landscape of the Bible to you and I today Faith has always been the capital that allowed man to relate with God. So back in the garden, in faith, man could continue being obedient. In faith saying, okay, God said, don't touch it. I'm just going to take him at his word. I'm going to obey in faith. Even in the days of Abraham, right? By faith, he believed and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now through Christ, it's not a matter of, well, I got to work now. No, I got to have faith that he finished the work. And someday we're going to enter into that rest again through Faith. It was faith that finished the Sabbath rest of God. It was faith, in fact, that God, uh, in the fact that God could determine good and evil, and it's still faith today. Look at verse number six. Seeing therefore, because of faith, 
it remaineth that some must enter therein. And they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Now, that's, I don't want to say it's a mouthful. It's not. There's a lot there, and it, it can be kind of hard to decipher. So let's back up and walk through uh, sequentially this verse. Seeing therefore, so because of faith, it remaineth. What does he mean by it remaineth? It means what is left. So because of faith, the reality left is that some must enter therein. They're into what? Into rest. So the first part of chapter, verse 6, he says this. Hey, because people have faith, their faith produces a place to enter into rest. Verse, the rest of the verse. And they to whom it was first preached enter not in because of, what's the word there? It's not works. You cannot use Hebrews 4 to talk about works-based salvation. He says, because of faith, the, the, what's left over, there remains a place of rest because they entered in by faith. But to whom it was first preached? Well, well, what's he referencing here? Well, Adam, no doubt. Hey, here's your rule. Obey it. Follow this in faith that I am God and that you are not. And just trust me in this decision. Well, there's also the Jews to whom it was first preached. But they entered not into the rest of Canaan because of their unbelief. Verse number seven. Again, he limited. Now that word again actually is a reference to an Old Testament passage, okay? Again, he limited or selected. Think about limited like a bookend, right? So you put a bookend here and you put a bookend here. There's a limited something in between those bookends. So again, he limited a certain day. He's talking about a day of rest, staying in David. So he says, David prophesied of that selected day of rest. Again, he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, today, after so long a time, as it is said, today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. So he says this, today, because of the promise that David made, what was the promise of David? That someone would come through his lineage that would bring us rest. So he says, today, the rest is presently offered back to humanity because of the arrival of Christ. And I know that's hard to kind of see uh, right back there in verse number seven. So let's, let's go back after it. Look at verse seven again. Again, he, God, limited or selected a certain day, saying in the writings of David, today, right now, Hebrews, at the author's day, he's saying, hey, today, after so long a time, we waited for this day of rest. We thought the day of rest was going to come in Canaan. We thought the day of rest was going to stay in the garden, but it didn't. But today... After so long a time, as it is said, today, if you will hear my voice, don't do what the Jews did. Don't do what Adam did. Do not harden your heart in unbelief. So he, the author is writing to the Hebrews of the first century. Hey, we've been waiting from David's time. We've been waiting from the garden's time. We've been waiting from the time we were supposed to go into Canaan for this rest. And it has never fully come. Don't do what they did. God is promising us and offering us a hope and a rest, not through works. Because their works couldn't do it either, but through belief. Okay. So there are three themes kind of colliding in one. I've mentioned them. And you're going to see it actually in the very next couple of verses. Three themes kind of colliding in one about this idea of rest. The first one was the one he already referenced, that it was said in Genesis 2 that God rested and finished the work from the foundation of the world. So what does that mean for us today? And I don't want to lose you. I know we're deep this morning. But he says, hey, over here, Genesis rest was God's plan all along. But we lost it because of unbelief. We couldn't work it back in. We couldn't work our way back into the garden. God forbid us. But then throughout human history, there were these moments where God said, now listen, I can't bring you back to the garden, but I'll bring you into Canaan and give you rest. But they wouldn't listen. 
Then in David, he says, hey, I'm going to bring rest, but they wouldn't listen. So there's garden rest. There's the children of Israel and Canaan rest. But what the author is using those two illustrations for is the rest that is now available today. While it is called today, do not harden your hearts. Jesus has come to offer us this option back into eternal rest with God, okay? So take a deep breath. I know that's a lot. Hebrews is not the easiest book, but it's a rich book. Let's go after verse number eight. For if Jesus had given them rest, so look at me, in those days, in the illustrations already used, if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterwards have spoken of another day? He says, look, through this whole stretch, these promises of rest were never sufficient. It's, it's kind of like what uh, uh, he'll say later in the book of Hebrews, that the sacrifice, if the sacrifice was enough, then there wouldn't be any, there, wouldn't, there, would, there would still be sacrifices. There wouldn't be need for Jesus to come. And he's saying, hey, if the rest we had in Cana or the rest we had under David or the rest that God created that we broke in the garden was enough, there would never have been a promise for another day of rest. But again, in verse 7, but today... That rest is available. Look at verse number nine. There remaineth therefore. So th- those days weren't sufficient, which is why, verse number nine, there remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. Hey, Canaan was not the goal. Hey, uh, under David is not the goal. Even in the garden, that's where we want to go. And that day has been promised by Christ. And we enter into it, not by works, but by belief. Hearing the doctrines of Jesus and mixing it with faith. Uh, and if we mix it without, uh, without faith, then it's not ours. Look at verse number 10. For he that is entered into his rest, Christ's rest, he also hath ceased from his own works as God did from his. You do, well, let me figure out how to say this. You are intentionally ignoring the Bible if you think you can use Hebrews chapter 4 to talk about works-based salvation. It is explicitly the opposite. Right here in verse number 10, for he that has entered into Christ's rest, he that person hath also ceased from his own works as God did from his. And so this idea that, hey, Canaan, listen, do you remember why they disqualified themselves from going into the promised land? They took it upon themselves. You remember why they disqualified themselves from the garden? They took it upon themselves. Now let's fast forward back over to here. Canaan, right? They're supposed to wait. And instead the children of Israel are like, hey, we're going to go up here and we're going to look at the promised land and see if we can beat them. We're going to do our own works. And God says, no, 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 don't do it. Don't go up there. My plan is to do this for you. You can stop from your works. I'll bring down walls. I'll, I'll drive them out through wild beasts. You don't have to do the heavy lifting. Trust in me by faith. You see that throughout the whole Bible, the currency has always been faith. It has never been works. There's obedience, sure, but it's never been about works. And so this chapter is so anti-losing your salvation, it's insane that anybody would try to use it. Look at verse number 11. Let us labor. And that's a verse they're going to say, see, you got to work. Listen, could you just back up and read verse 10 again if that confuses you? For he that has entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works as God did from his. Well, no, no, no. Verse 11 says, let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest. See, pastor, you got to work to be saved. It says it in verse 11. Well, either the author of Hebrews is bipolar and completely forgot about the sentence he just said, or he isn't saying what you're trying to make him say. The word labor means this, to be excited, to be eager to chase after. Uh, It's almost like, think about the little kids at like an Easter egg hunt. Like, all right, kids, are you ready to do this? And they're like, yes, blow the whistle. That's what the author is saying. Hey, you're going to stop working because he already paid for it. You're going to accept it by faith. But let's be eager about this. Therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. 
He's not talking about works. He's talking about the fact that you show up to the register and you're like, yeah, I, uh, I, I, uh, I did many wonderful works. You never had it. You seem to have it. You cast out demons and you prophesied in his name, but you never knew me is what Jesus will say on that day. Let's keep reading in verse number 12. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing of sunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, this is a great verse, and it's a standalone verse if you need it to be, that, hey, it can cut through all kinds of things. And that's true, but in its context, what it's saying is, when you stand before God, think about verse number one of chapter four. Hey, let us therefore fear. This book will lay you bare on that day. If you think you're getting there by works, this book will divide soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of your own heart. It knows things about you. And when that book is open on judgment day and God opens the book of life and the names that are found in there and he opens the word of God and he compares what you've done and who you are with what the scripture says about belief and unbelief, you cannot hide on that day from that sword. It will show and lay us bare. Look at verse number 13. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. He said, you will not. You can hide and seem to have salvation here and now, but it cannot hide on that day. Every creature will be made manifest that day. Verse number 13, the rest of it. But all things are, and this is kind of an uncomfortable word because it's an uncomfortable reality. All things are naked and open under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He said, you will not be able to even cover yourself. I'm not, I don't think this verse is suggesting we'll have no clothes on judgment day. I think it's suggesting simply that you cannot hide on that day. This book is a sword that defies even soul and spirit. Uh, you and I can't, you and I, sometimes people will try to like, you know, the spirit is this and the soul is that and the body. And sometimes, I mean, it's, it's kind of a convoluted effort to like try to divide soul and spirit. But the Bible knows exactly, that's where it goes. Joints and marrow thoughts and intents. This is what you thought. This is what you intended to do. And it will divide everything to the day that you and I, I love how it says, with whom we have to do. (laughs) We've got a meeting with this God and this word is going to divide everything about us and we will be made completely manifest as every creature will be. In fact, before the eyes of God, all creatures are naked and open unto, uh, unto his eyes. Look at verse 14. Seeing then, and again, he's, he's bringing us back to the circumspect view of verse 1. Hey, let us therefore walk in fear. Verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast. He doesn't say our works, our profession. Our profession of what? Our profession of belief, a profession of faith. So listen, if he's yours, you will be standing there that day before him. But if he's yours, you have an advocate who is with you, who will uh, advocate on your side. We have a great high priest who on the day the word makes us bare, the son makes us righteous. You hear me? On the day that I stand before God and he, he discerns every thought and intent and every time I thought I was doing it for the right reasons and I was doing it for the wrong reasons and I'm going to be bare before him. The author here says, but take hope. Your high priest is with you. He sees you. He knows you. In fact, we're going to see a lot more about him knowing us. You're not going to be alone per se in that day. Hold fast to that profession of faith. Hold fast to that belief, that doctrine mixed with faith that profits you. Because if you've heard the doctrines, but you've never accepted by faith who Jesus is, it profits you nothing. 
It doesn't matter if you can say, well, I know who Jesus is, and I know the doctrines, and I can quote the names of the disciples or quote the books of the Bible. That does you no good. In fact, would you just briefly jump over to Matthew chapter 7. Keep your finger there in Hebrews chapter 4. Fifth, uh, chapter four sorry, Matthew chapter number 7. It's this awful, famous passage that I just want us to see. He tells us in verse 14 to hold fast our profession. All chapter long, he's been talking about our faith and our belief. Think about this. This verse scared me for a while when I first got saved because I thought, man, those guys, they've done stuff. To this day, I still haven't done most of the stuff in verse 22 and 23. Look at Matthew 7, 22. Many, you don't have to be a Greek scholar to know that that's a lot. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils. And in thy name done many wonderful works. You know what that is? A profession of works. That's all that is. Lord, look at all I have done for you. I deserve to go to heaven. I have prophesied. I have cast out demons. I have built buildings and and established churches probably. I've done many wonderful works. That's my profession. Could you imagine? And, And that used to scare me until I logically thought through this. When I stand before God, I don't think there's going to be a time where sometimes we say it like, well, you know, when he asks, why should I let you into heaven? I don't think that's going to happen. I think he's going to look in the book of life and say, okay, Casey, yeah, you can enter into the joy of the Lord. But imagine there was. Imagine there was a day where you could adjudicate yourself before God. You're standing before him. And he says, okay. Now, again, this, I don't think this happens. But if it ever could, would any of us logically be like, if the, if God says, okay, why should I let you in? Well, um, hmm, let me see. I pastored on that day. You know the only thing a saved person would ever plead? Father, you said if I come to you through Jesus, you would save me. That's all I'm saying. I'm not going to tell him about the years I spent in Bakersfield. I'm not going to tell him about the years I spent in Lombok. He saw all that. But what the Bible told me, Father, is that if I could come through Jesus, that his blood would pay for my sin, then I'm saved. Now, again, that conversation is never going to happen because he already knows all that. I'm not going to teach him anything on that day. But on that day, these people tried to. And they hold fast the profession of their works. And they say, we've done wonderful things and we've prophesied and we've cast out devils. But look at verse 23. Then will I, Jesus, profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. That's a profession of faith. Those who know Jesus, they know him as Savior. And if you don't know the Son, you don't have the Father. There's no admission into heaven. All right, so he tells us in Hebrews 4, 14 to hold fast our profession. Look at verse 15, and we're almost done, okay? Verse 15, well, let me see. We've got, uh, how many more verses we've got? Okay, we only got like two. Let's do it. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched. Notice the comfort. He says, hey, you're going to stand before him. You're going to be laid naked and bare before the eyes of God, but you have a high priest. And that high priest is not a high priest which cannot be touched by the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. And because of that, because he knows our feelings and he knows our hurt, you know, what, what, what really gets me, think about this. Jesus knows what it means to be lied about. He knows what it means to have his character maligned. But you know one thing that even in eternity past, God had never experienced was the shame of sin. Never experienced that. But by being a man on the cross, the Bible says he became sin for us. And all of, so like when you're walking through life and you mess up and man, you have that like, I'm such an idiot moment. Like how I am so wrong, Lord. 
While Christ never could ever say, I am so wrong, he despised the shame of the sin. He endured the cross. And sometimes we, we, we equate way too much, you know, and I don't think you can equate way too much. Obviously, the sufferings of Christ physically were, were terrible. But the fact that, a, that God became sin for us and knew shame had never known it. You know the regret that you have when you look at something you shouldn't have looked at? He's experienced that. And we have a high priest who can advocate on that behalf. When I come to God and think, I know I've said I'm sorry so many times, Lord. And I, I, I come to say it again. He understands that feeling. And because of that, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. While he has never failed, he has felt your failure. While he has never sinned, he has felt your sin. While he has never done anything that merits shame, he has felt your shame. And he says, listen, come with me. My father will accept you. My father will take you. My father loves you. And the fact that we have, and this is one of the things he's introducing in Hebrews, we have a better high priest than Aaron ever was. These Hebrews are like, yeah, Aaron was the best. And the author's like, actually, Jesus was the best because he was perfect in every way and is after a better priesthood than Aaron ever was. So we'll pray. There's no coffee corner, so I stole your extra five minutes, and that's okay. We'll be back together.